The Sermon on the Mount addresses issues related to kingdom citizens. As such, Jesus expounded upon the characteristics of citizens. He also explained that as king, he is not annulling the law, but enforcing it as the permanent and binding law of his kingdom. In light of the law's permanence, it was necessary to correct some misinterpretations regarding the law. In Matthew 5, to 26 Jesus correctly interpreted the sixth commandment to prohibit the outward physical act of murder and the inward emotions of hate and anger, so often portrayed in demeaning and derogatory words. In Matthew 5, 27 to 30, he correctly interpreted the seventh commandment to prohibit the physical act of adultery and the lust behind it. Now in Matthew 5, 31 to 32, Jesus corrects the misinterpretation of the law's allowance of divorce. Now, it should be noted here that Jesus is the Deuteronomy 18 prophet. Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So when Jesus speaks on the issue of divorce, he speaks only what the Father commands him to speak. Since God nor his word changes, Jesus' statement regarding divorce is in line with what God previously commanded in his word. Now, divorce is the dissolution of a marriage contract between two people. Before the 1960s, marriages could not be dissolved unless someone, quote, committed an act legally recognized as incompatible with the continuation of marriage. The legal term for divorce at that time was at-fault divorce. The grounds for divorce were either desertion, abandonment, cruelty, or adultery. Interestingly enough, that's exactly what we're going to find in Scripture. It was also not enough to present grounds. It was necessary to substantiate the grounds for divorce with proof. In other words, you couldn't just say it, you had to prove it. Now, in 1969, California became the first state to create a no-fault divorce option. The new law stated that a person could divorce if either spouse became dissatisfied. Today, 40 to 45 percent of marriages end in divorce in the United States. Of those 40 to 45 percent who divorced, the median duration of marriages is seven years. Today, four in ten marriages include one individual previously married. And while marriages vary ethnically, the highest rate occurs amongst whites. Men remarry more than women after a divorce. However, the gender gap is closing. During the 1960s, there was a 22% gap. Today, the gap has shrunk to 12%. Christian marriages are not doing any better. A 2004 survey confirms that the percentage of Christians divorcing is the same as the national average. Now, much of what the modern church believes about divorce and remarriage developed during the 1960s by Catholic writers and those agreeing with Catholic marriage law. The question must be raised, what does the Bible say on the issue? Too often we form opinions on traditions that are steeped in Catholicism. 
Today, as biblicists, we must correct such distortions to the Word of God as Jesus did to the pharisaical distortions of his day. Just because a group of people has accepted something over time does not make it right. This type of fallacious argument assumes the proposition is true because many people believe it. That is as ridiculous as saying that something must be accurate because it's on the internet. Now, engaging people on divorce and remarriage is difficult due to the associated pain and guilt. Instead of passing judgment and adding guilt, we as believers should desire to see what God's word says on the issue. A biblical view of divorce and remarriage will keep some from making bad choices, release others who have made bad choices from their guilt, and rescue those who have been maligned and sidelined by the teachings and traditions of men. And speaking of the traditions and teachings of men, we ought to consider what Jesus says about divorce, remarriage, and the kingdom citizen. Now, as Jesus addresses the issue of divorce, remarriage, and the kingdom citizen, he begins by restoring the original intent of the divorce allowance. Thus, Matthew 5, 31-32 sets forth the divorce allowance properly interpreted. The divorce allowance properly interpreted. Let's read Matthew 5, 31-32. It was said... Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, the phrase, it was said, alludes to the teachings and traditions of the Pharisees. Jesus responds to the Pharisees' twisting of the law with, But I say to you, while Jesus begins by quoting the divorce allowance, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce, the Pharisaical misinterpretation seems to be missing. Now, the quote is from Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. Let's read it. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now God's original intent for marriage was that it be an eternal relationship. However, Humanity's sin resulted in death, which ended the eternal aspect of the marriage covenant. According to Deuteronomy 22.22, 22, 
Adultery was punishable by death. It says, If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. That God required death as the punishment for adultery meant that God views adultery as the death of a marriage. Now, due to other issues of marital uncleanness, not punishable by death, God made allowances for divorce as outlined in Deuteronomy 24. For example, indecency, which refers to improper behavior or shameful exposure, was grounds for divorce. Though God allows divorce, he still hates it because, like death, it was not part of his original plan for humanity. Malachi 2.16, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, divorce, karathuth, derives from a term meaning to cut off or bring to an end. In terms of marriage, it refers to the legal dissolution of the marriage covenant. However, divorce was not a simple escape clause from the marriage contract. A divorce required several days to obtain, the need for legal help, and the return of the dowry. It also allowed both parties the opportunity of remarriage. Once either party married another person, they could no longer return to their previous spouse. Now, while the pharisaical misinterpretation seems missing in Matthew 5, 31-32, the original recipients were well aware of it. Providentially, the Holy Spirit directed Matthew to record the events of Matthew 19, 3-9, which provides insight into the pharisaical misinterpretation of the divorce allowance. Specifically, Matthew 19.3. Let's turn over to Matthew 19. Keep a finger or a mark uh, in chapter 5 of Matthew, and let's also go to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 3 says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, the Pharisees questioned Jesus as to whether or not he agreed with the liberal or conservative views on divorce. Both pharisaical views of Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 are problematic. The liberal view, as taught by Rabbi Hillel, allowed men to divorce for the most trivial of issues. As taught by Rabbi Shammai, the conservative view allowed men to divorce only in cases of adultery. Also, according to the Pharisees, only men were allowed to divorce their spouses. Before correcting their misinterpretation, Jesus restates the purpose of marriage in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, Jesus quoted from Genesis 1.27 and 2.24, showing that God's purpose in creating man and woman was to bring them together to make them one flesh, a spiritual, emotional, and physical unity. That term joined, proskalao, means to be glued together, and it emphasizes the permanence of the marriage 
union. Now, having reviewed God's purpose for marriage, Jesus adds in verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. You see, God's original intention was that no one separates what God put together. However, that was just what man did when he sinned in the garden. Death entered creation and brought to an end the eternal marriage relationship. So in light of God's original intent for marriage, the Pharisees now ask in Matthew 19 verse 7, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now this question is identical to the it was said statement in Matthew 5.32. Note that the reference to Moses is a Jewish euphemism for the law as received by Moses. Examining Jesus' statement in Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.8 and 9, we will discover six corrections to the pharisaical view of divorce. Correction one. The law permits but does not command divorce. The first correction is that the law permits but does not command divorce. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 19 verse 8. That because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. The Pharisees claim the law commanded them to divorce. Again, look at verse 7. Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce? Jesus counters claiming the law permitted epitrepa or allowed divorce because of humanity's sinful nature. Now, it ought to be underscored here that Jesus does not repeal the divorce allowance. Instead, he keeps it within the bound of the law. In Matthew 5.32, Jesus says, let's go back to Matthew 5. Again, keep your place in Matthew 19. We'll be back and forth. In Matthew 5.32, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. Jesus held the same line in Matthew 19.9, stating, let's go back there, Matthew 19.9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Thus, to obtain a divorce, unless there is immorality, is a breach of the law as found in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. See, God views an unlawful divorce as sinful. In Malachi 2, the Lord lays out three reasons why unlawful divorces are sinful. Reason 1. Unlawful divorces hurt innocent people, Malachi 2.13. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning. Now, the tears, the weeping, and the groaning are the laments of those wives who were tossed aside for younger women. Reason two. Unlawful divorces break the marriage covenant made before God, Malachi 2.14. The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Yahweh witnessed their marriage vows and now is witness to the treachery of these husbands. Their treachery is abrogated by the fact that not only they, did they ignore their vows, but they left their wives destitute. 
when they followed after their lust. Reason number four. Unlawful divorces are an act of violence against one's spouse. Malachi 2.16 For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. The phrase covers his garment refers to the Hebrew marriage custom where a man took his robe and draped it over his bride. The giving of one's robe symbolized the husband's protection and care for his wife. To cover his garment with wrong means that by exposing his wife to an unlawful divorce, this man was treating her violently. So again, correction number one, the law permits but does not command divorce. The second correction, correction two, is that a woman unjustly divorced is not an adulteress. Jesus states in Matthew 5.32 that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. Now, the phrase commits adultery has created many misunderstandings. The passive voice of the verb commit, moikao, indicates that the unlawful basis for divorce caused the woman to be viewed or scandalized as an adulteress. In a culture where only men could divorce, society would assume that the woman committed adultery. Mark chapter 10 and verse 11, a parallel passage, better translates the nuance of the verb. It states, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, moikao, against her. In other words, the husband's unlawful divorce and accompanying adultery were done against his wife, his first wife. She is the victim. A better rendering of Matthew 5.32 would be, when you divorce her without proper grounds, you cause her to suffer from the adultery while at the same time making her look like she was guilty of something worthy of discipline. Now, such a translation would also apply to a man who was unjustly divorced by his wife. So, correction one, the law permits but does not command divorce. Correction two, a woman unjustly divorced is not an adulteress. Correction three, the third correction, is that a man who marries a woman unjustly divorced does not commit adultery. A man who marries a woman unjustly divorced does not commit adultery. In Matthew 5.32, Jesus states that whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now go back to Matthew 19.9. Matthew 19.9. He also states whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Also, let's consider Luke 16.18 where Jesus says, he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now, if we simply read these statements in English, it appears that Jesus is saying that a man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. However, the Greek text implies something else entirely. And here's a great example of what the old rabbinical proverb says about translations. Translations are like kissing your bride through the veil. 
it's not the same as kissing her directly on the lips. So we need to go back to the original text. In the context of these three passages, the woman who was in view was the woman unjustly divorced. She has been scandalized, but she's not an actual adulteress. Again, the passive voice of the verb commits adultery indicates that the man who marries this woman is also scandalized by her now ex-husband's unlawful divorce. There is nothing in the Greek text to indicate that the second marriage is adulterous. The wife and her new husband, or the husband and new wife, did not sin. The sin and guilt are upon the first husband or wife who sinned with their unlawful divorce. So, the law permits but does not command divorce. A woman unjustly divorced is not an adulteress. A man who marries a woman unjustly divorced does not commit adultery. Let's look at the fourth correction. Divorce is permissible in cases of immorality. Again, the fourth correction. Divorce is permissible in cases of immorality. Jesus says in Matthew 5.32, Everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. As well, in Matthew 19.9, he says, Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Both unchastity and immorality translate the Greek term pornea, often translated as fornication. However, to what does immorality or fornication refer? It must be made clear that pornea is not referring to premarital sex. Too often, many make that very claim. If pornea, or immorality, fornication, refers to premarital sex, how does a husband or wife commit it? The reality is that a husband or wife cannot commit premarital sex. Paul used the term pornea in 1 Corinthians 5.1 to refer to incest. It's reported that there is immorality, there is pornea among you, and immorality of such a kind as it does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Jude used the term pornea in Jude 1.7 about extramarital relations with another man's wife or daughter. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. However, immorality, fornication, pornea, extends beyond incest and adultery. The Greek term pornea is used in the Septuagint to translate the Hebrew term zena. According to the concise Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, the literal meaning of zena is illicit intercourse. Illicit intercourse. Now, to what does illicit intercourse refer? The question is answered by considering the warnings of Leviticus 18.29. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. Now an abomination is a sin against God and as such punishable by death. Leviticus 18 provides a list of illicit sexual relations that were abominable and punishable by death, including incest, Leviticus 18, 6-18, adultery, Leviticus 18, 20, 
pedophilia, Leviticus 18.21, homosexuality, Leviticus 18.22, and bestiality, Leviticus 18.23. Deuteronomy 22.24 also includes rape and prostitution as illicit intercourse punishable by death. Thus, when Jesus states that divorce is permissible in cases of immorality, he is referring to incest, adultery, pedophilia, homosexuality, bestiality, rape, and prostitution. So, so far, the law permits but does not command divorce. A woman unjustly divorced is not an adulteress. A man who marries a woman unjustly divorced does not commit adultery. Divorce is permissible in cases of immorality. And number five, correction number five, a woman can divorce her husband due to immorality. Consider Jesus' statement in Mark 10, 12. If she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Now Jesus' statement elevated the woman's position in Jewish culture where they were viewed as property. In Greek and Roman culture, women could divorce their husbands. Thus, Jesus states that the same conditions applying to the women as the man. If a woman unlawfully divorces her husband, i.e. for the sake of gratifying her lust, and remarries, then she is guilty of adultery. Again, let's recap so far. Corrections, the law permits but does not command divorce. A woman un Justly or unlawfully divorced is not an adulteress. A man who marries a woman unlawfully divorced does not commit adultery. Divorce is permissible in cases of immorality. A woman can divorce her husband due to immorality. And finally, correction six, the sixth correction. Divorce has replaced death as the punishment for immorality. Again, divorce has replaced death as the punishment for immorality. As a result of the fall, Death brought marriage to an end. Under the theocratic kingdom, any act of illicit sex or immorality was an abomination before God and punishable by death. Thus, immorality ultimately ended a marriage. Because the theocratic kingdom is not operable on earth at present, Jesus substituted the death penalty with divorce. Divorce does the same thing that death does. It brings an end to the marriage in God's sight. That divorce replaced death as a permissible end of a marriage has been the view of the Orthodox Church and renewed by the Reformers of the Reformation. Now to recap, God intended for marriage to be eternal. However, because of humanity's sin, God cursed humanity with death, which brings an end to the marriage covenant. God also allowed divorce to end marriage again because of humanity's sin. Nonetheless, God hates divorce because, like death, it was not part of his original plan for humanity. God also hates divorces that are unlawful or initiated merely to appease the desires of one's flesh. Now, that said, listen very carefully. It is necessary to underscore that God does not hate the divorced. Indeed, God himself is currently divorced from Israel. Jeremiah 3.8 says that God has written Israel a bill of divorcement. Now, if all divorce is sin, then God sinned. And if God sinned, he is no longer holy, and therefore he's no longer God. So not all divorce is sinful. Furthermore, 
Jesus upheld the divorce allowance as given in the law. While the law permitted divorce for issues of uncleanness, not punishable by death, it prescribed death for adultery and other sexual perversions. However, because Israel was not living under the theocratic kingdom in the first century A.D., Jesus substituted the divorce allowance for the death penalty. His rationale was that if sexual immorality was punishable by death and death brought an end to the marriage, then a divorce which ends a marriage would be an acceptable substitute where the death penalty or when the death penalty cannot be applied. And Jesus' interpretation of the law still applies to us as believers today. So whereas Jesus correctly interpreted the divorce allowance, how does the divorce allowance practically apply today? By examining several other critical biblical texts on divorce, the divorce allowance can be practically applied. So let's consider some principles. Principle one, where scripture is not clear, godly wisdom must be sought. After the exile, Jewish men took pagan women as wives. Ezra was concerned about obeying the law and maintaining the purity of the people, since God's law commanded them not to marry pagan women, Deuteronomy 7.14. However, the law said nothing about what to do regarding such a marriage. And because Scripture was silent, in Ezra 10.1, Ezra prayed, fasted, and sought wisdom from God. Subsequently, in chapter 10, verses 10 to 11, Ezra devised a plan. He was to give a period to the pagan wives to repent and convert. If repentance was not attained, the husband was to separate from the pagan wife and provide for her and the children. Now, commanding husbands and wives to divorce was not ideal. However, Ezra found himself in a morally ambiguous situation. On the one hand, God commanded the people not to take pagan spouses. On the other hand, the law only specified divorce in cases of sexual immorality. With no solution present, in the law, Ezra sets the examples for us to follow. That is, where scripture is not clear, godly wisdom must be sought. Principle two, the divorce allowance applies equally to all believers. As the gospel spread throughout the Gentile nations, the issue of divorce came to a head amongst the Corinthian church. The church, composed of Jews and Gentiles, clashed regarding divorce and remarriage. Jewish believers said a wife could not divorce her husband, but a husband could divorce his wife. Gentile believers said either could seek a divorce. Paul had to practically apply Jesus' proper interpretation of the divorce allowance to the church. He says in 1 Corinthians 7.10, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. In other words, he is teaching them what Jesus already made clear. Paul begins by stating, 1 Corinthians 7.10 and 11, the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, the principle of, of the permanence of marriage is at the forefront of Paul's instruction. Wives should not leave or separate from their husbands. Husbands should not divorce their wives. Nonetheless, as Jesus already discussed, some issues arise where divorce is allowed. Jesus already stated that the husband or wife could invoke the divorce allowance. To that end, Paul outlines what should be done if an issue arises that would threaten to destroy the marriage. First, the wife or husband could leave, carizo, or separate from their respective spouse. This separation is not a divorce. 
Instead, it's a period in which the marriage may be salvaged. Two conditions are placed upon the separation. Remain single or be reconciled. These conditions apply to the separation period. Second, if the issues cannot be resolved during the separation period, they may divorce, afemi, or legally dissolve the marriage. Once the divorce is finalized, the marriage is terminated. And in, the ca- in such a case, those conditions no longer apply. Concern that some might hastily seek a divorce and be guilty of an unlawful divorce, Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 7.27, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. In other words, he admonishes married couples, work out their problems. He then adds in verse 27, part B to 28, Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. In other words, if a person initiated an unlawful divorce, they should not seek to remarry. However, if the divorce was for legitimate reasons and they remarry, they have not sinned any more than a virgin would sin by getting married. In summary, Paul demonstrates that the law's divorce allowance applies equally to all believers. Principle 3. Unbelief is not a legitimate cause for believers to divorce their spouse. Now, Ezra struggled with the issue of mixed marriages between believers and unbelievers. Remember, having no clear teaching from Scripture, he prayed and sought godly wisdom. His solution was for the couple to divorce. Now, understand, this was not divinely sanctioned, but divinely allowed. To that end, Paul presents a different solution. While God has not amended his command that believers and unbelievers not marry, believers should not up and quit their marriages when it does happen. As Paul reveals in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 13, But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. In other words, unbelief is not a legitimate escape clause for believers to divorce their spouses. And finally, principle four. Believers are not liable if the unbeliever initiates the divorce. Believers are not liable if the unbeliever initiates the divorce. Now, what if the unbeliever decides to divorce the believing spouse? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.15, if the unbelieving one leaves... Let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. That phrase, not under bondage, dulao, means to be constrained by the law. In other words, if an unbeliever abandons his or her believing spouse, the believer is no longer legally bound to the marriage and is free to seek a divorce. Hence, Paul sets forth a second exception clause to divorce, desertion. An abandoned spouse is under no constraint to God's law to remain married to a deserter. Furthermore, they are legally free to remarry in God's sight. Remember, God has called believers to live in peace, not hostility. Trying to remain in a marriage that one spouse does not want to be in only leads to conflict. And then principle five. The divorce allowance also applies to addiction and abuse. The divorce allowance also applies to addiction and abuse. 
Again, let's look at 1 Corinthians 7.15. If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. The plural usage of the phrase in such cases occurs nowhere else in the Greek New Testament or the Septuagint. However, over 600 usages of the phrase are found in Greek literature dating between the 5th century B.C. and the 4th century A.D. In each of these usages, the phrase implies the idea of any similar situation. Hence, when Paul invokes in such cases, he's not merely referring to desertion. If he was referring only to desertion, he would have used the singular in such a case. However, by using the plural tense, he's referring to other situations that would also destroy a marriage. Such cases include, but are not limited to, verbal, sexual, emotional, economic, and psychological assault. It also includes alcohol, drug, and gambling addictions because they are often accompanied by destructive behavior such as lying, stealing, and even violence. Abuse and addictions are in direct conflict with God's plan for marriage. You see, within the scope of marriage, husbands and wives are to be one flesh. Abuse or violence against one's spouse violates the one flesh union. Dr. Craig Keener, professor of biblical studies at Asbury Theological Seminary states, if a husband is beating his wife, that would certainly seem to violate the one flesh union. If he were beating himself, we'd recommend psychiatric help. If he is beating his wife, who is supposed to be one flesh with him, he is certainly not treating her as one flesh. When there is a violation of the one flesh union, it is incumbent upon the victim or their associates to take the necessary steps to stop the cycle of violence. Each case of domestic abuse is different and will require different solutions. However, depending on the severity of the abuse, it may be necessary to remove the victim from the situation. Again, Dr. Keener states, there does come a point where discretion is the better part of valor. Some people are too ready to grasp for that point. Others wait much longer than they should. Jesus told the persecuted for his name to flee from one city to another to escape persecution. And sometimes the apostles did so. It is heartless to make someone remain in an abusive situation. Friends, while God hates divorce because it was not his original intention for marriage, not all divorces are sinful. The scripture lays out at least four legitimate allowances for divorce. Immorality, desertion, abuse, and addiction. Are there other areas where the allowance applies? Yes. And it is incumbent to remember that godly wisdom must be sought where the scripture is silent. How pastors and churches have handled the divorce issue is incredulous. Pastors stop flat out refusing to perform a marriage because a divorce is involved. Take the time to see if the circumstances align with the scriptures. As well, the height of hypocrisy is to refuse to marry a couple because of divorce, but then encourage them to marry elsewhere, but come back and serve in our church. Pastors, churches must repent of such hypocrisy. And furthermore, it is time for pastors and churches to stop viewing divorced people as second-class citizens. Not every divorce is sinful. And even in cases where it was sinful, repentance grants immediate forgiveness. If divorce makes someone a second-class citizen, what does that say about the Lord God, who is currently divorced from Israel? 
Is God a second-class God? Indeed, he is not, nor should his people be viewed as such. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, Lord, we come before you in light of these two verses of Matthew 5, and we pray that you have gone forth and prepared hearts. We pray that what has been studied, what has been examined, has, Lord, given comfort to many who have experienced divorce. I pray, Father, that you would go before them. And, Father, if their divorce was unlawful, that, Lord, you would bring them to repentance and then restore them. Father, if they were the victim of an unlawful divorce, I pray, Lord, that you'd help them to be released from the guilt, to understand, to know that there is nothing that they have done. There is no sin that they have committed. Father, I pray for those who have remarried. That again, Father, based on the biblical principles, they would understand that so long as the situation is right in your sight, the remarriage is not an issue. And Father, for those who struggle with that, for those who have family members who have been divorced and remarried, Father, I pray that they would again examine these things in light of the scriptures. And Father, see that if a remarriage has taken place, yet the divorce was lawful, that Father, there is no reason for them not to remarry. Father, give us grace. Give us mercy. We're all sinners. We've all sinned against you. And we've all come to you in repentance. And we've all enjoyed the forgiveness of sin. So, Father, while we don't hold it against another for any other sin they've committed, may we not hold it against anyone who's been divorced, lawfully or unlawfully, or remarried, lawfully or unlawfully. But rather, give these things over to God, to you. We pray this in your Son's precious name. Amen.